You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 17th of January. And on the programme today, we looked at how nations should collaborate to keep their communities safe from cybercrime. We spoke to Craig Jones, who's the director of cybercrime for Interpol, that big global organisation. And he explained that the UAE is performing well on the global stage. Meanwhile, there's been something of an outcry over a UAE-based company bringing ice from the fjords of Greenland to put in your glass. We talked sustainability with Arctic Ice. Meanwhile, there's another major conference going on in the UAE right now, focusing on project management. And one of their speakers is the former Formula One driver, David Coulthard. He joined us on the line to tell us what Formula One can teach us about rapid thinking in project management. But he also shared a lot of thoughts about the upcoming Formula One championship and also why we still don't see women on the F1 tracks. Plus, Donald Trump has cemented his status as the clear front runner after a resounding win in Iowa. U.S. political correspondent Ari Kovler told us what it means for politics in America. And a new report shows that artificial intelligence will affect nearly 40% of all jobs. So how can you future-proof your career? We got advice from recruitment expert David McKenzie. Plus, the Pokemon craze that closed a gallery. Art expert Anna Seaman had all the details. Plus, Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines. I'm going to start the program today with a few statistics. Okay, brace yourself. Every year, there are over 500 million victims of cybercrime around the world. That is over 1.5 million a day and 18 per second. Uh, I mean, it it quite clearly, you know, it is a, a problem of mammoth proportions. So how on earth are we going to get a handle on this issue? Why is it proliferating so fast? And ultimately, when it comes down to it, who is responsible for catching the fishers and the hackers? And, and I mean, one of the reasons why we're looking at that on the program this morning is because the world's security experts are currently gathering at the Intersect Trade Fair in Dubai. We were all down there yesterday with the agenda. And we, we, I mean, there were some really fascinating people on hand, all talking about how they are trying to work together to protect us all online, to really sort of deal with this scourge of cybercrime. And one of the keynote speakers at Intersec is Craig Jones, and he actually leads the Interpol Global Cybercrime Program. I was lucky enough to catch up with him a little earlier, and he sort of, I mean, basically he talked me through uh, the, the sort of major issues that they're facing and how the landscape has really changed over the last few years. I started Interpol back in 2019. My role was to come in and help further develop our global cybercrime program with our 196 member countries. And we base that on preventing, detecting, investigating, disrupting cybercrime and helping support police in those sort of operations and investigations. But then COVID came along and we saw a massive explosion of people going online. So if you like the potential attack surfaces that criminals could attack online were expanded during this time and, and criminals took advantage of that. 
And effectively, it allowed them more access. So they were able to scale up their operations. They were able to quickly and in a very agile way move their capabilities around. And some of the tools that they're using when they are committing these crimes, they're sort of tools that previously, five, ten years ago, would only be available to sort of nation states to use. Now, these are available pretty much online to people to purchase and share. And that helps the, the criminals facilitate their crime. So you mentioned there that cyber criminals now have access to tools that previously were only available to nation states. But we have also seen an explosion in cyber criminality between states, haven't we? I mean, if you think back to when the war between Russia and Ukraine started, there was a lot then about cyber warfare, for example. That must be difficult for for Interpol to to sort of manage. We're a a neutral organisation. So we have our Article 3 precludes from dealing with anything that is political, military, racist or religious. So our, our tools and networks cannot be used by our members in those terms. So when we're looking at cyber criminals, we have to be very clear when we're supporting countries and allowing them to use our tools And a lot of hard work and effort goes into that. So if anything does appear that it is sort of state-sponsored or state-supported, effectively then we say to those countries, right, you have to take those data sets off our networks and systems. And that maintains our neutrality. And that's really, really important. Are we seeing friendly countries working together to combat this problem? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that brought this to a head was the the attack on the colonial pipeline in the US. And shortly after that, there was uh, another attack on a health service in Ireland. And those attacks were ransomware attacks. So effectively, the, the criminals came in and they encrypted the colonial pipeline and also the healthcare in Ireland. At the same time, and this is the sort of strategic side to this, a report was done probably about a week before it was launched in the US about, um, it's called the Ransomware Task Force, looking at the problem of ransomware. So you almost have that perfect storm at that point. Now, as a result of that, that the counter-ransomware initiative was initiated in the United States, that's now got over 50 countries uh, as part of that initiative. Interpol are part of that initiative as well. Also, the UAE are as well. Now, what that is looking at on a global basis is what actions and activities can governments, communities, businesses, industry take to mitigate and reduce the harm from ransomware. So so you've got a fantastic join up now. Information sharing is, is one of the key things to this. And the UAE, in fact, are working very closely as part of the international uh, ransomware task force and that's bringing together law enforcement governments national cert so those sort of agencies that look after cybersecurity in countries and it's a real community now and I, i'm quite excited one to be involved in that but i can see the potential because that coordination between countries between industry and all partners we're very focused there about how do we disrupt that ransomware piece and those criminals within that space. Is there a big focus on this in the region specifically? You mentioned the UAE there, but what about the wider Middle East? Yes, there is. So it's a really strong piece within this region at the sort of national cybersecurity level. 
So you have the National Cyber Security Council here of UAE. Oman lead a piece of work about coordination between the sort of government agencies that look after cybersecurity. We in the region are looking to set up a Middle East North Africa cybercrime desk. And what that desk means is we will have law enforcement officials, you know, like myself, seconded into Interpol. And we have a particular focus on, on the sort of Middle East North Africa region. And as I said earlier, what we're looking at there is how do we prevent, detect, investigate and disrupt cyber criminals? Now, within this region, we don't see a huge amount of criminal activity directly emanating from this region. But what we do see is a lot of criminal activity looking to um, exploit companies, businesses, individuals in this region. So here at the moment, we've got a conference going on uh, in Dubai, which I'm here for. And there's, and then on Thursday, we, we've got a meeting of a, a number of uh, sort of leaders from that, that sort of national cybersecurity agencies coming together. And being able to have law enforcement involved in that, being able to have the private partners being involved in that, there's a very, very clear focus within this region, but also in the UAE, just refreshed the uh, UAE cybersecurity strategy but also looking at the sort of cyber future over 50 years. So being able to look at this as a challenge, but also an opportunity about how we protect our communities more effectively, the region here is able to do that 10, 15, 20, 50 years out and plan for that. And you've got to take that approach realistically. Is that actually translating into sort of specific strategies here in the UAE for you know, people listening to this program, people who are actually operating here in the UAE on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. You've got this on many different levels. You've got the sort of critical national infrastructure. So a mapping exercise has been done, and this is a continued process. And this is a lot of countries do this. They, they look at what's that critical national infrastructure. So if that critical national infrastructure suffered a cyber attack, what would then be the impact? within the country. So let's look at attack on the banking sector, or let's look at attack on the electricity infrastructure. So when you look at those sort of attacks, what would be the impact if electricity was switched off because of a cyber attack? And again, a lot of planning's gone into this, and this is often called resiliency. So what's the resiliency? What's the backups that need to be put into this? But then you need to look beyond just the critical national infrastructure, because there's a, there's a whole supply chain within this as well. So the countries that we see around the world that are now digitally mature are maturing are looking at this from another sense now about, okay, well, what happens, the the, the what-if scenarios? Sometimes we're reactive rather than proactive. So it's after the event that we do a lot of planning. But within this region, there's a number of countries now that are, are really investing in the resources that we need to protect that infrastructure. And I think Dubai City is a good example of this during the Expo 2020. One of the key factors in that was, you know, maintaining that infrastructure, making that sort of cybersecurity a really key focus. And a lot of exercising goes into this as well. Uh, I've walked into a number of boardrooms once they've had a cyber attack. You have this shock and disbelief and they say, how did this happen? And when you have the sort of debriefs afterwards, you you look at what systems they had in place and what measures they did, what exercising, quite often they didn't do anything. And, you know, you don't want that call on a Friday night as a CEO from, you know, your chief operating officer, someone saying, our systems don't seem to be working. You know, if you don't have that playbook, but if you haven't practiced that playbook, 
you're not going to be in a good situation for you know a period of time when you do suffer a cyber attack. Interesting to hear there how the UAE sort of prepares itself for potential uh, sort of widespread ransomware attacks, particularly ahead of Expo 2020. Often I think that is the situation when countries are uh, get permission or win the right to host these major events. There are certain hoops that they're required to jump through to show that they are resilient to any potential attack. But very interesting to get a sort of slight behind the scenes peep there from Craig Jones, who leads the Interpol global cybercrime program. We're going to actually hear a little bit from him uh, next because he's going to talk about whether or not the internet companies, whether the tech companies themselves are doing enough to protect us. And we're also going to talk about grassroots efforts that he's admired here in the UAE uh, that the government has already implemented to sort of encourage more knowledge, more understanding at a grassroots level of, of cybercrime. Really interesting interview. Looking forward to hearing the second part. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. We are looking at cybercrime on the programme this morning, but from quite a sort of macro level. We're not just talking about sort of individual scams. Uh, we're actually talking about how states, how countries deal with it, how the big multinationals deal with it. And in part, that is because the world security experts are currently gathered at the Intersec Trade Fair in Dubai. We were actually down there yesterday. And it certainly is the case that if you go to somewhere and you meet loads of people there, you realise how interesting it is. Um, I mean, there really are some fascinating people in town. And everyone's talking about security on every single level, both physical as well as online. Um, And they're all talking, you know, it's quite encouraging in many ways. They're all talking about how they're going to work together to protect us. And one of the major subjects, as you can imagine, is uh, cybersecurity, is how they're protecting us online. And it's not surprising. The facts and figures are absolutely staggering. I will throw a few at you now, like I did earlier. Uh, Every year, there are 500 million victims of cybercrime. Let's break it down. That's uh, over 1.5 million a day or 18 a second. Now, earlier I caught up with Craig Jones. He is one of the important people in town for Intersec. He actually leads the Interpol Global Cybercrime Programme. And I asked him, you know, I mean, this is the second part of our interview, but, but I got into the details of whether or not he thinks that the public, you and I, are aware enough of the threat. As a parent myself, I have two children, um, they're 25 and 21 now. One of my children grew up just on the peripheral of that sort of digital explosion. The other one very much embraced it. So he had mobile phones. He was gaming all the time. And we used to sit down and conversations. He's like, oh, dad, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I, I was really worried as a parent. You know, I didn't often have the tools available to me to be able to advise him what he was doing or, you know, know what he was doing at the time. So as parents, as leaders, we, we have this responsibility to one who we're working with, but also our children. Also, there's a technology side to this. The online business is, is massive. So in terms of getting people online, getting them using those tools, quite often, sometimes security can be overlooked. You know, we want the quickest, we want the fastest. Um, when, when children are gaming, and I saw some figures yesterday, and I think it's about some between 83 and 93% of the children do online gaming or, or using mobile phones, et cetera. So potentially a vulnerabilities in that 
are massive. So, you know, as parents, do we sit down? Do we discuss this at schools? What are the programs in schools to educate children about, one, the benefits of going online, but two, the potential dangers? And I know in the UE recently, there was a whole day dedicated within schools about looking at cybersecurity. And I think they sort of used the, the Minecraft game to try and explain to the children about online safety. But this has to be really, you know, hard baked into the educational system. We need to be able to have these discussions. And sometimes maybe we don't want to have those discussions because we don't quite understand what's going on online. We don't understand that technology side. But certainly from my point of view, I, I look at it from a safety aspect. You look at the, you know, the physical sense of the world. We're quite happy to talk about driver safety. How do we say safe on roads? Well, we built that up over the years. Over time, the safety things have been built into the vehicles. That's been quite a long journey, effectively. And we're still only at the early parts and early stages of this journey about you know making sure we keep our children and our businesses safe when we're all online. So are the internet companies, are the tech companies that we use every single day, are they doing enough to help? with this cyber crime problem? So I think I could answer that question as a yes, but also I can answer it as a no. In the United States, they just relaunched their national cyber strategy. And it's the first time I've seen a strategy make two important points. The first one talked about individual small businesses not having to be you know, totally responsible for their own safety when they're on Line. So this is about things like passwords, when they're using networks and systems, so networks and systems should be secure. The second part was putting more onus on the providers about software, etc., to make sure it is secure. Because quite often you, you hear about these cyber attacks, and it's because there's a vulnerability in the software, the system or the network. So when we have companies and organizations and people writing this software and this coding, Sometimes the, the security aspect may not be at the top of the agenda, shall we say, because they want to get things to market quickly. So sometimes it comes out with vulnerabilities in there. And this is why you hear about these this, this patching as well. But also, you know, criminals will look at those vulnerabilities in much the same way as a criminal might go and scope a neighbourhood for a house to burgle, and they look at those vulnerabilities about how they can break into it. The, the cyber criminals operate the same way, but of course, they're able to do that remotely. So there's definitely two sides to this. I think, one, we can all do more. So there is a responsibility on all of us, because quite often we just fire up the laptop, fire up the phone, we start using the apps. We don't necessarily know how reliable those apps are or that piece of software is. So it's a bit like jumping in your car, making sure the brakes are working properly. You've got enough fluid in the windscreen wiper, washer bottle, but if it rains, you're going to be able to clean windscreens. I think also when we look at internet service providers, ISPs, you know, what are they hosting? They are hosting sometimes the, the criminal actors. Now, they may not know that. So how do we identify the infrastructure that's being used by the criminals? And it could be some infrastructure that is perfectly legal but also it might not be, or it might be hosted in a country where it might be hard for law enforcement to go into that country and get that infrastructure taken down. So, you know, there's a responsibility for all of us, but I think probably there's more the industry could do. And um, I'm going to use this term for the first and only time in, in, in this sort of talk we're having is uh, artificial intelligence. 
So when we look at artificial intelligence now, I, I believe there's an opportunity there to really use that technology to improve that sort of cyber security for all of us effectively, to almost automate that. So you've almost got that protective shield over you already when you go online. We shouldn't be complacent if that happens. But again, I think that's the next step we're looking at here in this space now. And I think in the coming years, that's going to be quite exciting. How the industry can really harness that technology to do more of that protection of everybody when they're online. He opened the AI door, but we didn't have time to fully sort of go into the details on that. And I think we've got we've got a lot of AI on the program anyway. Um, so we thought we'd leave that for the next interview. Uh, but certainly fascinating to hear there from Craig Jones, who is uh, leading the Interpol Global Cybercrime Program. Very kind of him to give us so much time. Uh, he's a busy man. He's here for Intersec, the trade fair uh, in security and fire protection and cybercrime uh, that's ongoing at the moment at Dubai World. Trade Center. Um, but really interesting stuff there to hear about how countries are working together. And of course, you know, great to get someone from a sort of neutral outside overview standpoint to tell us that the UAE is doing well at this. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Now, I imagine many of us started this new year uh, with a certain amount of vigour, you know, with a get up and go attitude about our lives, about our careers, about our jobs. But it's fair to say that with some of the latest reports coming out of the IMF, it's quite difficult to stay upbeat because they're quite depressing. Their researchers say, for example, that artificial intelligence is set to affect nearly 40% of all jobs. And, and this is the stinger, in most scenarios are like is likely to worsen overall inequality. They also say it's going to stoke social tensions. Uh, so happy Wednesday. <laughs> to everyone. Um, And certainly the potential impact of AI or generative AI is proving to be one of the key topics of conversation at Davos at the moment. Of course, World Economic Forum being held there, all the important people all gathered in one place. And Maurice Levy, who's chairman of Publicis Group, told CNBC that in his view, AI's rise will be more transformational than the mobile phone. AI will transform the world. We have to, to face it. It will be something which will be more transformational than the mobile phone. So if uh, you are very happy with your Galaxy phone from Samsung, you will see that AI will really change the way you will uh, get information, you will be educated, you will work. Other mobile phones are available. I wonder whether he's sponsored by Galaxy. Unlikely. Anyway, we are determined to wrest some sort of semblance of control over our lives with headlines like that. So we've invited career advisor and recruitment expert David McKenzie into the studio. He is managing director of McKenzie Jones Middle East. David, lovely to have you with us. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, positive New Year. Yeah, I felt positive as well <laughs> until all these reports started coming I know. through. They're a bit depressing, some of them, aren't they? They are. Do you agree with no. this forty percent number? Oh, interesting. Well, look, let, let, let's be honest. Do you remember? Do you know what a weaver is? Someone who makes rugs. Right. So the the AI equivalent of of what's happening now was the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, and there were weavers everywhere. Everyone was employed by a weaver. Like 40% of the UK were weavers, apparently. Goodness. And they disappeared overnight down to the Industrial Revolution. And I think that's going to happen with AI. There are certain careers that 
that are repetitive, that you don't need to think and you don't need to be a human to do. The only reason they are still going to this day is because we haven't got AI properly sorted. So there's a really interesting quote from a guy called Sam Altman, who's the OpenAI founder, said the other day, AI is overhyped today. Today it's Today. overhyped. Yeah. I, lo- I love how the, these tech gurus, they often do a sort of little giggle afterwards, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. don't worry, the robots aren't going to take over the world yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the days of Skynet and, you know, all those sort of things, the 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 dissolution of, of human beings as, as workers, I think AI will take over. And, and there's, a, there's a great stat. I think the, reading one of these things, I looked at it myself. The World Geek Economic Forum, which is the future of jobs 2020, said 85 million jobs will, will be replaced by 2025. So that headline's quite shocking. What it says underneath, 97 million more jobs will be created. Oh, so there's a positive balance in that, There always right? is, because, yeah. look, things like, you know, we're talking about taxis becoming, um, you know, like in ro- robot, or they're going to be robots, basically. Yeah, yeah, automa- gonna be, automated. I was struggling with the word there. No, thanks. no, because there's a lot of them. Don't worry. <laughs> they're going to be automatic. Exactly. Di- autonomous. Autonomous. There you go. There you go. So that's going to happen because, actually, do you need to have a taxi driver that gets tired, upset, doesn't pay attention to the road, etc. Doesn't know the way. Doesn't know the way. We've lived here too long, George. Um, so you, those sort of things will be replaced. But what about teachers? Because teachers have an emotive side, and it's a language-based thing where they can look at a child who may not be able to communicate properly, and they can understand what a child's saying. So will AI take that over? Definitely not. And that is very encouraging, although I definitely don't want to be a teacher. So um, <laughs> what should you... You know, what would be your advice? Well, first of all, actually, let's go back a step. Have you seen an impact on the market here? You know, for example, have you seen more people saying, no, I need you to have the, I need them to have this skill set. I need them to be able to do this. Yeah, I think what you're finding in the UAE is becoming a much more focused skill set. So I recruit in HR. So rather than talk about HR generalists, they used to do everything. Now we're going, right, what an L&D specialist, a talent specialist, a recruitment specialist. So we're going down that sort of niche area where people are specialists in their areas. And I think to future-proof yourself as an individual, certainly if you're in your early years of, of careers, focus on an area you want to be really good at. Don't be a generalist because if you become a generalist, there's always that instance where somebody can be better at doing your job or maybe a robot could take it over i I think in the next 50 years it's not going to happen but you know how quickly things move it could happen in the next 10 years are your hr specialists being expected to be able to use more complex technology more complex software yeah absolutely so one of the things that we're using at mckenzie jones we're using an ai to screen CVs. Now, before Already? you... I, 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 wow. I saw the look on your face. The reason being, and I'll be very honest, in Europe, you place an advert on LinkedIn, you get maybe 150 replies. Here, you get more like 1,000 because everyone People applies. trying their luck. Exactly. So we use it not to screen on, on nationality or what, on what they do as a job. So if we put an HR director's job up there and somebody applies as a sales director, that will screen them out. And that does it automatically for you? It does. That is very cool. And so I suppose mm. ultimately LinkedIn is offering these AI tools instead. And, and that's only going to get more advanced. Mm. I, am I right in thinking that you can now get an AI robot to do preliminary interviews? Yes. 
Yeah, oh yeah, it's been it's been around for about five or six years. Yeah, and really, quite, and they are very good now. So there are certain AI tools that can. I know that Fly Dubai, I think, was doing this um, very early on. A guy, a gentleman called Nils, who's the head of uh, recruitment, he put in place where they were doing certain cabin crew, some of the lower levels. You applied, you got a link that came through from Fly Dubai. If somebody from Fly Dubai can confirm this, you then basically did an interview online where an AI interviewed you on certain questions and then you went through to the next stage, which would be a human interface. But if you weren't good enough in that robot phase, then maybe you didn't get the human. Yes. Goodness me, I hadn't realised that that was already, you know, and I suppose the great thing about AI and machines is that they are in some ways, well, that's an interesting question. Are they more effective at reading, um, you know, the, the... the subconscious. The nuances. Yeah. No, I, at the moment they're not. That's why if you look at my job, in theory, I'm on that dead list at some so point. So am I, don't worry. They don't need me anymore at all. Well, They George. don't need me now. <laughs> they, they, seriously, they could... They, they, first of all, the AI could come up with a script yeah. and then they could find someone to say the script without going, um, uh, or forgetting the word but, for autonomous. But you've got to remember that the, the, the reason why people like listening to the radio is because people have a, an interactive conversation. They make mistakes. Yes. You, you, you go off on a tangent, whereas AI sticks in it. So, example, my job as a recruiter, technically, the, 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 the assessment part of my job, or, or you can have an AI doing it. They can go through CVs and select on certain things. But what they don't see is on a CV, when you speak to that person, how they come across, how yeah. they interact with you as a human. Because... When you think about HR, my profession, it's about humans. It really is. Yeah, it really is for you. Yeah. And therefore, it's not going to, I think you're always going to be safe with that. Not me, George. I'm gone soon. You know that. (laughs) Not that soon. You're very healthy indeed, to be honest. In terms of my my career, I'm at the the back end of my career. But if you look at my sons, there. So, for example, one of my sons is a Marine, he's a soldier. In theory, if you look at all those science fiction films, he will be replaced by a robot. Yes, that's true. But but I don't think that will happen for a long time because humans have to make decisions in the heat of battle when they have to make a call whether to do something or do another thing. And I don't think robots at this stage are, are able to... What they do have, they have these, these robots that carry their packs. No, really? Yeah, they're like dogs. They've got... They've basically got... Yeah, they're very cool. The British Army aren't using them at the moment, but they've been trialling them. So rather than carry your pack and your heavy weaponry, these things walk beside you up mountains and stuff. They're very cool. That, I had no idea that yeah. that was going on, but that is very cool. What's so interesting about warfare, though, is, mm-hmm. and I remember we did an interview with, about this about six months ago, is that the war in Ukraine and Russia, you'd think, obviously, we're in a new new technological an age, and, and certainly we just heard from the um, the head of cybercrime at Interpol, you know, there is a lot of cybercrime going on between the two, well, you know, cyber yeah. hacks going yeah. on between the two countries. But actually, when you get to the front line, it's old school trench warfare it's medieval it's medieval yeah, yeah. it's really old-fashioned they're still. throwing grenades over a, over the thing over at each a wall other. Yeah. Or, or missiles but, but think about this what 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 the, the the war in ukraine has shown us is the use of drones yeah that's true so that's they, true. they use drones to do what planes used to do spot targets or to drop munitions onto uh, onto targets, tanks or, yeah. or targets etc so you, you think about it we forget that drones are a form of ai because They've taken what was a plane, a very expensive product that can be shot out the sky. You can have thousands of drones just flood the sky with them. Yeah, and you can already see it happening. I've got about 30 seconds left with you. Um, You've got kids. What would you recommend children should be 
you know, getting in their skill set? What should we be training them up to? You know, say they're they're 16, they've just done their GCSEs Mm. or whatever exams they're doing. What should we be focusing their minds on, do you think? I think things that are skills-based. So data scientist is a very good one. Analytics, big data is always going to be there. So Mm. if you've got a mindset for that, put them into that. But also doctors, yeah, you know, some of the, the carpenters, those old professions are, are starting to come back. There are more graduate trainee jobs coming out that are apprentice jobs now. Yeah. Less people Plumbers. are going to uni. Yeah, exactly. You can't get, I mean, can you imagine all the finickety things a plumber has to do? Yeah. They're not going to be able to get a robot doing that. David McKenzie, <laughs> food for thought as always. A lovely, far-reaching conversation we had there. Very <laughs> interesting indeed. Uh, thank you very much indeed. That's David McKenzie there, uh, Managing Director of McKenzie Jones Middle East, uh, talking about how you can future-proof your career. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. We're going to turn our attention now to one of the biggest international news stories around this week. And I'm talking, of course, of the start of the US election process. Because late on Monday, Donald Trump trounced his Republican rivals in the first in a series of primaries in Iowa. Uh, If you don't get the American system, don't worry too much. We will explain it over the next few months. In fact, producer Jennifer Crichton has been following the story and joins me now. Jen, I remember waking up to this and I'm going to be a little bit political now and with a slight sinking heart seeing that Donald Trump was doing well in the primaries. That's just my personal view, of course. I know there are lots of people who support uh, Donald Trump, lots of people who support the Republicans in this country. Um, but my heart sank. So, But anyway, let's talk about what it means. Why am I telling everyone what I think? What, what, anyway, what does this all mean? I mean, I don't think you're alone in that. I, I th- we'll come back to this. Well, but- I mean, that's what it is about American politics or world politics. You either love him or you really don't. Well, I mean, to essentially start at the end, I heard someone this morning saying it already looks as though American democracy has failed because what we're looking at being the most likely outcome here is a two-horse race with two fairly old... Gentlemen, rich gentlemen that really don't inspire the majority of the population. But we'll come back to that. that. Right now, in strictly numerical terms, the former president left quite a bit of clear air between himself and his nearest rivals. Earlier, I caught up with our regular US political correspondent, Ari Kovler, who said he will be reveling in what he will see as a decisive victory, having claimed 51% of the vote. It doesn't sound like a huge victory. It means nearly half of the voters voted for somebody else. But in Iowa terms, that's a huge victory. Um, the nearest other candidate was Ron DeSantis with 21%, um, and Nikki Haley behind him with 19 So he had like a 30% lead um, on anyone else who was close to him. And that's a commanding lead in, in, in Iowa. So 51%. Now, Iowa is a state where we would expect Trump to do well. It's largely white, conservative. It has a large evangelical Christian population where Trump is a popular figure. And when you look at it that way, 51% might, as Kovler suggests, not sound as decisive as Trump might like to suggest. But in Iowa, it is significant. We saw a rise in college-educated delegates voting for Trump, which we hadn't expected to see. And bear in mind, at this point, there's still a reasonably crowded field to split the vote. So anyone getting to that halfway mark is doing pretty well indeed. And Trump used the podium it gave him to strike a fairly unusual, for him, conciliatory tone. I really think this is time now for everybody our country to come together. We want to come together 
whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, it would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing. That's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important. And I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon, too. It's going to happen soon. That is unusual. He's taking a very different position in his campaigning, if that's what he's going to go with. Isn't he? And I mean, we've not seen him taking part in any of those debates. He stayed largely out of the spotlight and just kind of let his rivals fight amongst themselves so far. And he did go on to criticise them, but it's still definitely something of a departure from him. And of course... On that front, it's worth remembering that while the Iowa primary has huge symbolic significance, it actually very rarely picks the winner, as Kovler explains. The Iowa caucus is the first stop on the Republican primary circuit, followed by New Hampshire before we really get into all the primaries in every state. And traditionally, the winner of Iowa does not go on to win the nomination. In fact, it's extremely rare. In this case, I think it is an exception. I think no one is expecting that any other candidate is in a position to come up and it really looks like a very positive sign for Trump. Yeah, so what happens next when it comes to that candidacy issue? Because they still haven't, the Republicans still haven't officially selected Trump as their candidate yet, have they? No, that's effectively what these votes are about. And that's the million dollar question. Because in some fairly odd scenes by any other country's standards, both of Trump's main competitors for the candidacy claimed their performances to have been a success. If we're honest, they're pretty questionable claims. For his part, Ron DeSantis made a lot of noise about having successfully punched his ticket to the next round in New Hampshire next week, despite his suggestion he'd been up against it. They threw everything but the kitchen sink at us. They spent almost $50 million attacking us. No one's faced that much all the way just through Iowa. They, the media was against us. They were writing our obituary months ago. They even called the election before people even got a chance to vote. Now, in truth, many close to DeSantis or his campaign had believed Iowa to offer the governor his best shot of a breakthrough. They'd put huge financial and manpower commitment into it, meaning 21% is going to have been disappointing to him. Meanwhile... Nikki Haley had put less focus on Iowa, but she still spent in the last few weeks $50 million campaigning there to receive just over 21,000 votes. So that's a little under 8,000 dirhams per vote. She also came in third, which made this claim interesting. I can safely say tonight Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Yes, a two-person race from the third-placed candidate. So it's an interesting take. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm left slightly stumped by that. Yes. Um, but tell me about uh, what Ari Kovler considered uh, the most interesting sort of takeaway from, from this race. I mean, essentially what he's saying is that a Trump-Biden rerun looks a bit inevitable. Now, that does depend who you ask. Trump, for his part, says yes. Um I actually heard an interview this morning with Congressman Joe Walsh. Now, he stood against Trump in 2020 and later left the Republican Party, claiming it had become, quotes, crazy. He said that the ages of the two men in the field mean the field could change if one of them dies, 
which tells you a bit about how much joy some people are feeling in this contest. But for his money, Kovler says a rerun of 2020's election still looks to be the most likely outcome. Next, the caravan moves to New Hampshire. That primary is coming down the track. It takes place next week. And it is a more liberal constituency than Iowa. So it might actually help separate those two candidates going up against Trump a bit more. DeSantis sitting more to the conservative side, Haley trying to take a more liberal approach. Essentially, though, at this point, unless one of them drops out, Trump's looking like he's got a pretty clear path to the candidacy. Very interesting stuff indeed. Needless to say, a story that we'll be following pretty closely here on the agenda in the coming months. Uh, Producer Jennifer Crichton, they're bringing us up to date. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. More often than not, cities around the world have developed organically. Uh, You get a sort of higgledy-piggledy combination of buildings and roads, depending on how old they are and how many times they've been remodelled. But here in the Middle East, cities are being designed, planned and built from quite literally the ground or I suppose the sand, up. And actually, this week, more than 2,000 of the people who design those towns, project managers, are meeting this week for the ninth Dubai International Project Management Forum, which is taking place right now in the Madinat, Dubai. I happen to know that half of the business breakfast team are down there at the moment, just to give you a sense of how interesting it is. They're here, I suppose, to share best practice. They're looking at future trends. They're looking at tech. uh, And they're figuring out new ways of working strategically. And one of the keynote speakers at the event, intriguingly, is former F1, Formula One driver, David Coulthard, who is a man known for his successes both on and off the track. Now, his priorities now include running several businesses and also he's running a campaign to get more women or women into Formula One. And he has very kindly taken time out of his day to join us on the line right now. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for traveling out to Dubai. Welcome. Yeah, well, it's uh, not a hardship and uh european winter to come to the sunshine here so uh yeah not many not regular visitor fantastic it's always good to have you here and i have to say uh, eyebrows were sort of gently raised because i have to say i'm not sure i immediately understand the parallels to be found between the sort of high octane glamorous world of formula one and the slightly more sort of strategic detail orientated world of project management but the more i'd read into it the more i have discovered there are indeed parallels yeah, there's, uh, well, I think many, in fact, because, uh, you know, Formula One is a, uh, like project management today. We are a, you know, data-driven uh, simulation world of uh, how do we get the best um, design concepts? Uh, how do we, 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 we actually understand what that may look like or feel like for the driver putting them in a simulator before you actually commit to manufacturing? So I think that when it comes to the concept and design, uh, you know, people would, every day people would be very familiar with, you know, renderings that would enable you to, to get a sort of feeling or a look or even a walkthrough of a, a new building, uh, whatever that project might be. Well, we're doing all of that when it comes to designing Grand Prix cars. Now, we have to deal with immovable deadlines. You know, we have 24 Grand Prix. Those races start 
and all the teams will be ready. So unlike some business projects that you, you know, very often in the UK you'll hear about projects that are well over over time and well over budget, which we just don't have an option to be over time, uh, otherwise we're not under race. So sport, I think, has got a way of focusing people's minds. And Formula One, I think, ties up perfectly with uh, the sort of challenges that everyone at the, the forum has, because we're a technology sport. Car is the dominant factor, and that involves engineering, it involves design, it involves aerodynamics, it involves efficiencies. You know, sustainability is a big part of modern Formula One. We have synthetic fuels, we'll have 100% synthetic fuels by 2030. Uh, sorry, 2026, and by 2030 we will be net zero. So these are all sorts of things that are relevant to uh, the, man, uh, the uh, construction and um, you know the people that have to pro- project manage these uh, various incredible buildings that are going up here. I know that you were very much involved with the the founding of the newly created uh, Red Bull Racing Team. That was you know when it was newly created back in 2005. I mean, what's so interesting about Formula One is that the rules change every single year, don't they? So, so the team has to adapt uh, every single year to the new regulations, much as, the, much as, I suppose, project managers have to adapt to new rules and regulations in every facet of their industry. Yeah, there's never been a season of Formula One where there was not some sort of technical regulation. One of the most obvious ones is over the last... 30 years, you know, safety has, um, you know, has been incredibly driven each year, you know, the crash tests, the safety cells, the structures, and, you know, teams are, are given greater demands on what the safety cell, what the protection system for the drivers are. And that's before you get into the sort of all architecture of what the concept of the rules are and you know they change depending on what what formula one the governing body feel is uh keeping formula one as let's say relevant as possible that may seem crazy for some people and what's the road relevance of a grand prix car but you know the hybrid engines that we use in formula one today are the most fuel efficient hybrid engines in the world so that sets a standard that your mercedes's and your ferraris and and, and others who invest in Formula One will, will use that technology development and it'll eventually find its way into the road cars in the coming years. So many of us have watched the, the Netflix series about Formula One and we've seen uh, the realities behind the scenes when it comes to the stresses and, and the strains. How difficult is it to get on with everyone in the team when you're facing that level of pressure? Well, I think that it, the... the Great if you can get along with everybody, but as in life, you know, even in a family, you know, that famous expression, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Um, the most important thing in the team, it, there has to be respect. There has to be an understanding of the direction we're going and everybody has to be aligned and knuckle down and get on with it. And if you've got anybody that's swimming against the tide, you know, that, that that's a little cancer in a sporting team that needs to be cut out immediately. So, you know, sports... It is just so focused on delivery that even if it's your favourite footballer, you know, who's uh, you know been a big asset to your your team, if they're in the twilight of their career, you don't want them on the field just because you really like them. You want the young, you know, up and coming man or woman that is going to score goals and is young and fit and and therefore you know sport we just keep moving forward and you know accepting that you, you there's a period for everybody to perform 
It's so interesting how quickly Formula One has to change, how, how quickly the tech has to change, how quickly the cars have to change. And yet there's one thing that is taking a very long time indeed to change, the fact that there are no women racing alongside men uh, in Formula One. I know that that is one of your uh, big campaigns. Uh, are we seeing any movement on that front uh, yeah, well, look, we're dealing with a tiny percentage of girls getting into karting in comparison to, to boys, and therefore the talent pool of which you're looking to try and find your Hamiltons or your, you know, your Verstappens or whoever your favourite driver is, 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 is just too small. So we need to encourage more girls into karting and to show them that through role models like Jamie Chadwick, who's now racing in America. She won the W Series, which was a, the, the women's single-seater championship that I was also part of. Um, the, these role models then become inspirational to the young girls who then go, well, well, it could be me, I can do that. There is no reason why women cannot compete on the same level as men, physically or otherwise. We just haven't had enough to, to find the exceptionals. You know, if I look at my own career, and if I can be mildly arrogant to say I was a good driver, but good isn't enough. Looking in sport for exceptional, and exceptional sportsmen and women are the ones that win world championships repeatedly. So what we're trying to do is start a process which, first of all, we're trying to find the good girls that then can be promoted into, into um, car racing. But ultimately, we're trying to find the exceptional girl that has the talent to go up against a, a Max and a Lewis. And frankly, I wasn't good enough to be up against them. So the, the task is high, but I'm particularly motivated to, to want to help women in motorsport because I had a younger sister. She was six years younger than I. We both were given the opportunity to go racing. But when I moved into cars at 17, 18 and started to show promise and show that I had the potential to move forward, then the family couldn't support us both and all the focus went on me and she lost out on that opportunity. I've always regretted that. And when she passed away in her memory, I, I vowed that I was, was going to do whatever I could to, to try and help the next generation of young girls and to try and give them the tools to be able to compete at the highest level. It may take time. But it will happen. And, uh, you know, not, not trying is not an option. Speaking about world champions, I can't let you go without asking you to look ahead to the next season and uh, whether or not you think we might start to see a slightly more varied winning podium um, because it's I mean, I, I enjoy Formula One, but, but it is getting a little repetitive on the winning front. Yeah, look, I completely get that. I'm, I'm a fan. You know, I grew up as a fan of the sport. I ended up competing there for 15 seasons, but back working in television, I just want to be entertained by great battles between great teams and drivers. And of course, last year was an exceptional uh, display from Max Verstappen and Red Bull, but that isn't healthy. It isn't healthy for them because success is a lousy teacher. It makes people think they can't fail. And, you know, we are an entertainment business. And without manufacturing that entertainment, we, we want to see light and shade. We want to see different teams having a real chance of, of having a, a crack at winning the race. Now, that's not Red Bull's fault any more than it was Mercedes's fault when they dominated the early part of the hybrid era. It's for the other teams to step up. So to answer your question, 
yes, I do think this year will be more competitive. I do think that the early signs coming out of Mercedes is that their simulator is telling them that the, the car for this year is giving more downforce and is more predictable. Let's see if it's borne out when it actually hits the racetrack. Ferrari had a very quick car last year. They just were not particularly strong in the races and they, they made strategic errors. They have a new team principal there who's now, let's say, fully embedded. So, you know, expect a higher level of performance from Ferrari. And then who knows, maybe Aston Martin or whoever your favourite mid-grid team might, might pop up with a victory. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed, quite literally, fingers crossed. I nearly couldn't put the fader up because I was literally doing it. Uh, David Coulthard, thank you so much for joining us on the line. It's been a great pleasure uh, chatting to you. I hope you really enjoy your your stay in Dubai uh, and, of course, uh, your appearance down there at the Dubai International Project Management Forum. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Amazing uh, to have David join us on the line. I'm sorry for a moment that the line was a little bit choppy at moments, but we stuck with it because uh, always brilliant to hear from someone as well known as David Coulthard there. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. I have a question for you. Do you like ice in your drinks? Do you ever consider where it's from? I think the only time I consider where it's from is if I'm in a sort of developing country and I'm a bit, I'm a bit like, is this from the tap or was it made from bottled water? Well, uh, that is not something you need to worry about here in the UAE. Oh, no, especially not in the, uh, the sort of more expensive bars and restaurants. Uh, and certainly the next time you buy yourself a mocktail here, it, the ice actually could be fresh from the fjords of Greenland. That is thanks to a Dubai-based company called Arctic Ice. It is one of those only in Dubai stories. Uh, and one of their team has actually joined us in the studio to talk us through, I mean, everything. Like, I mean, I've got so many questions. Uh, Roxy Yekta, lovely to have you join us. How are you? Thanks for having me. Um, I'm good, thank you. Well, I want to know, first of all, why, I suppose, why ice from the fjords of Greenland? What is different about the ice that you are shipping all the way from Greenland to put in my mocktail? Great question, great question. Um, So I would say the first differentiating point for Arctic ice is the fact that these are quite rightfully from the fjords of Greenland. Um, It is the purest form of H2O, mostly because it's in these fjords that have been developing for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's actually from the unscathed ice that otherwise would have melted away in the sea. And now we're shipping it over to Dubai. So quite rightfully, like you said, you can enjoy it in your cocktails or even in services such as spas and so forth as well. So people are are willing to pay for ice to be shipped from Greenland in order to put it in a cold bath. (laughs) That's That's a great question. It's so Dubai. (laughs) It is so so Dubai. Dubai. It is. But honestly, you can taste the difference. I was a skeptic myself, but the ice is unbelievably good. Really? When you say taste the difference, can you describe the difference? I wish I could. It's like the best tasting water you've ever had in a clear ice form. I've had it in a drink myself, but uh, I would love to bring in a sample later this week for you to try yourself. I I mean, I'm definitely going to take you up on that. Does it look any different? It looks, crisp, it looks crystal-like almost, other than the ice thing you usually get in uh, bars and restaurants here. It looks much more clear. I don't know if you've seen any of the photos. 
on I some have, of the articles. Yeah, yeah, I have. It looks, it looks very attractive it does, <laughs> in, in it an does. icy way. Um, tell me how on earth this idea came about. Because, I mean, obviously, there are some huge question marks around it uh, when you think about, you know, sustainability because it's been shipped here. Right. You know, is it bad for Greenland that you're, quote, stealing their ice? Um, let's focus on that first. Uh, so, you know, you know, it's not a very green thing to do, let's just say. Like the pun. <laughs> so actually how the idea came about is four of the co-founders, uh, essentially two of them are actually Arctic engineers and the majority of them are actually from Greenland. So the idea came about when they were in one of these fjords on a, on a boat uh, trip, if you will, and they saw that so much of this ice is just melting away. Uh, and basically they went to the Greenland authorities and they said, hey, why not for the sustainability and actually for the betterment of Greenland, why don't we ship this ice to countries that are obviously uh, a little bit money spending as well as they would enjoy the fact that it's such a pure form of water in ice form. Um, so actually Greenland has given them a certain amount that they can ship or take per year of which the amount that's actually melted on an annual basis, the only amount that Arctic ice takes is 0.0005% of that. So it's actually very, very little. The carbon footprint's almost negligent, if you will. And it doesn't harm any of the wildlife because most of the fjords that these are taken from, it's so, so cold that no, mo most uh, Arctic life is not there. And like I said, this is just ice that would have melted away otherwise. It's not taken from icebergs. How do you keep it cold on its journey here? Do you just put it in a refrigerated tanker thing? A uh, great question. So one of the one of the four co-founders is actually an expert in transportation. So it, it needs to actually come 20,000 kilometers to come all the way from Greenland to the UAE. That is one of the things that's in the pipeline of making it even more substantial is that uh, substantially, uh, let's say green, uh, is that we're going to look at non-fuel tankers in the future. However, they are ice, ice cold, because this is one of the biggest important things, because we actually found it in 2022. But our first shipment just came this month to the UAE. Oh, wow. So you have been working on those logistics. Correct. I am going to have to pinpoint the ridiculousness of importing ice 22,000 kilometres when you can make it out of the water from your tap here and, and in the freezer of your own home. But I suppose there is a market for it here, isn't there? There definitely is a market. I would say uh, Dubai definitely is the place where you would uh, imagine something like this. And uh, other than that, I really think you just should taste the difference. Have you seen a lot of, uh, have you had a lot of F&B companies getting in touch? Is there interest? We have. So um, I can't do any name drops, unfortunately, just yet. But you will very, very hopefully soon see us in a lot of five-star establishments, hotels, as well as uh, standalone F&Bs as well. Are you just focusing on the UAE market at the moment or is there interest elsewhere in the Middle East? So currently UAE is our first and forefront in the market. However, by the end of this year, we will be shipping globally as well. Are you planning to sort of counteract the sustainability sort of criticism um, in any other way? Because I think you know, the green issues are, are are gaining ground here in the UAE. We had COP28 here just a few months ago. And I think that there might be, I mean, I, from, a, from a company perspective, I think you, you must be slightly fearful of some sort of blowback, of some sort of knee-jerk reaction, that, you know, some suggestion that you guys really are, um, you know, there's some sort of sand analogy there, but you really are harming the environment by doing something slightly ridiculous. 
Um, I understand definitely the, the idea. I think there's a lot of misconception and that people think we're hacking away at icebergs. Whereas, like I said uh, previously, it's actually from the ice that's already been removed from these icebergs and would have otherwise melted in the water. However, what we will be doing and what our founders are very, very uh, passionate about is that once we obviously hit the profitability mark, one, we're going to ensure that our transportation is much more eco-friendly. And two, a lot of it will go back into sustainability in the wildlife and preservation of the Greenland fjords itself. Really interesting, Roxy. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Uh, Thank one you for of, me. It's certainly one of the topics that's got most people talking over the last few days. So really, really lovely uh, to have you with us. That is Roxy Yekta, who is from that company, Arctic Ice, who are indeed bringing ice fresh from the fjords of Greenland to put in your mocktail right here in the UAE. Let's talk about Pokemon cards. Uh, We love a bit of hype here. Do you remember the Dubai Mall iPhone launch? People queuing around the block. But would you queue for hours for a Pokemon card? Well, in Amsterdam, thousands of people did. And today, the aftermath of the chaos that they created has really got the art world talking because the card in question, which featured, um, it was Pikachu wearing a grey felt hat. Uh, and it was only released as a gimmick to promote the Van Gogh Museum. But while obviously the aim was to sort of create a new crowd, the scale of the enthusiasm completely overwhelmed the gallery. They had to close their doors and later they had to replace the collector's card with a postcard because so many sort of scalpers were getting involved and and trying to resell it ultimately. So is this a promotional success story or is it a lesson in being careful what you wish for? Well, to discuss that and what it means for the I suppose, the art world's efforts to attract a younger audience. I'm joined now on Teams by our expert, Anna Seaman. She's a curator and co-founder of the NFT fine art consultancy, Morrow Collective. Anna, always lovely to have you join us on the line. Good morning to you. Hi, do, Georgia. Hi there. Uh, I mean, do you think the museum ever expected this level of response? What do you think they're thinking about it right now? Um. I don't think they expected the kind of response that they got. I think what they did, um, to be honest, was a good idea. I really, I really think it's important for the younger audiences, kids, to engage with art, fine art, and the history of art in different ways. So I do think it was an innovative idea. Um, but I think what they accidentally did was tap into a market which has quite a lot of hype and craze around it, which is the trading cards market. And that's why they got mobbed. I'm not sure they got mobbed by children who were willing, who were win- wanting their Pikachu um, grey felt hat card. I think they got mobbed by people who were looking to capitalise off this card, which was obviously a limited edition. And they thought that, you know, they would make some money off it. And I think some people did. It went on to um, secondary market fairly quickly. So I don't think that they intended what, um, to, what happened to happen. Is it a case of... Any publicity is good publicity because if you've got people coming in the doors or you've got, you know, people on the radio in Dubai talking about it, <laughs> uh, isn't that, you know, isn't that good news from a, from a museum's sort of publicity point of view? I, I think so in a way, yes. I mean, it is possible that um, this elevated engagement with, with the artist, which is what they were trying to do. And in some respects, yes, I think 
all, all news is good news if it's if, if we're talking about it. So I don't think I wouldn't say from my point of view that it totally backfired. I just think that what they did was looked at differently by different audiences. Do you think that galleries are finding it increasingly difficult to attract a younger audience? Or in fact, is this is this a story that's already been written? Is this something that's been considered, you know, a decade ago and there's already lots of children's programmes in place? There are lots of children's programmes in place. Most of the big museums will have really innovative ways of having children engage. This was a um, this was a kind of uh, quiz or a, um, like a journey. You had to go through the Van Gogh Museum and um, find certain things in the paintings, and then when you finished this this um, like experience or, or a journey, you you were given a Pikachu card as a as a gift. And this is. It's, a, it, it's an innovative way because they brought in something which already has a very cult um, status, Pikachu, um, in with an artist who, you know, is arguably one of the most well-known artists in the world. So I think, I mean, this is this does already exist, as you said, in, the, in most museums in the world, but this is kind of like next level. And I think what they've done, the thinking behind it is obviously a lot of kids now spend most of their time behind screens playing games. Um, Pikachu and the trading cards actually date back probably to the 90s when when there was a huge um, hype about Pikachu in particular, which is why I think that people from different demographics than just the children were so engaged with this and why they got mobbed. But in, in general, I, I do think it's a, you know, it, it's a funny story, but it, it does have a positive outcome. Still, people went to the museum. You know, it's possible that they did engage with the artwork as well as just kind of like try to grab their Pokemon card. Whether or not Pokemon cards themselves could be considered works of art is a conversation that's going to have to wait to another day because I'm a little bit late for the news. I can always talk to Anna for ages. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the radio this morning. That was Anna Seaman there, curator and co-founder of the NFT fine art consultancy, Morrow Collective. We will talk about the artworthiness of Pokemon cards on another day. It is time for us to catch up on all the latest sporting headlines. Uh, Sending over this report this morning is our editor, Chris McCarty. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Wednesday. Plenty to discuss in the world of sport. Let's start with football. The big news that broke yesterday morning, in actual fact, so we've had to wait a near 24 hours to discuss, is Jose Mourinho once the special one. Is he now the has-been one? Sacked by AS Roma. They've had a difficult season, to say the least. They're down in ninth. Okay, yes, only four points off fifth. But the weekend's 3-1 defeat to AC Milan. The final nail in the Jose Mourinho coffin at Roma. And yet again, it's a pretty familiar pattern. Third season, Jose's luck runs out and he is sacked. Of course, Jose, a hugely popular figure among some sections of the Roma fans. Of course, he did lead the club to its first European trophy in over 60 years back in 2022, that Europa Conference League victory over Feyenoord in the final. That certainly saw him win the hearts, not necessarily the minds, but certainly the hearts of the vast majority of Roma fans. He will leave a hero. But yeah, Jose Mourinho, a man who is quickly becoming a bit of a journeyman in the world of football management. He is back, not quite on the scrap heap. I'm sure he was given a huge multi 
£40 million payout, but he is back looking for a job. Interested to see now where Jose Mourinho pops up. Will it be Saudi? Will it be international football? Does a return to the Premier League a look on the cards? Really interested to see what will transpire over the coming months. But Jose Mourinho gone at AS Roma. As for the footballing action, we'll look no further than the Emirates FA Cup third round replays last night. Wolves, they needed extra time to beat their fellow Premier League side Brentford in a real great game this. 3-2 it finished. The big shock of the night though, West Ham beaten down at Ashton Gate by Bristol City. So West Ham who've had good couple of cup runs in recent years. Certainly in Europe, of course they won the Europa Conference League last season. They are out at the first hurdle out of the Emirates FA Cup. Elsewhere, the big news in the world of rugby, well the news yesterday that uh, Rhys Zamet, Lewis Rhys Zamet, the flying winger for Wales, he has turned his back on rugby union. The 22-year-old is now going to be heading off to the US later this week in his bid to become an NFL player. No one saw this coming. He's been released with immediate effect from Gloucester, the Aviva Premiership side, and yeah, interested to see now whether Lewis Reed Zamet can crack it stateside. Warren Gatlin, his international coach at Wales, he has said that, listen, he wishes him all the very best. He's got his doubts whether he can, though. Very few follow the NFL player programme and actually make it into the big league. So really interested to see whether Lewis Reed Zamet, who I'm told, huge NFL fan from a young age, but at 22 years of age, one thing he is not lacking is speed. The boy has got speed to burn. Will that be enough, however, to earn him a contract in the NFL? We wish him well. Really interested on the eve of the Six Nations to see how that man gets on. But yes, that is a huge loss for Welsh rugby. Another big day of tennis action down at Australian Open as well. Of course, Novak Djokovic back in action. Looking forward to seeing him yesterday. So Carlos Alcaraz come through Richard Gasquet in straight sets. Wins two for Emma Raducanu. So yeah, another big day of sport. Looking forward to it all. And of course, you can catch up with myself and Robbie we're back on air from 5pm with Off Script and then all your sporting intrigue will be discussed dissected and deliberated over after 7 Fantastic stuff as ever Chris McCarty thank you very much for bringing us up to date on all those sporting headlines they will be back with Off Script The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm